because people are so confused and crazy, true things sound absurd and funny. And that's the bit. That's the whole bit. The Social Psycho Confabulation with Ben and Mr. A. So Kim said she's starting her DEI and it's ridiculous. Okay. Oh my God. And then you. Now we're keeping this content in here because it is I the know. best topic ever. It's the it's worst amazing. topic. Okay. Because now, did she. Look, I can't. I'm, I'm she's the, in corporate DEI training, right? Yes. And I'm triggered now. Yes. And one of their DEI employees quit. Quit. I'm doing scare quotes. Quit. I think she got fired. It was the lady that we talked about that like they- With po- the crazy she, eyes? Yes. That she posted oh. on there that's like holding up the like white national or a black reverse racism, whatever <laughs> thing that was. And she like got she like quit, but she's still on PTO. It's like, wait, you quit on PTO? No, I think you were told not to come back after PTO, but whatever. And she's doing, and now it, she's doing her DEI training, and it's like literally like it says well, that when someone's like giving you shit or whatever, or, I don't know the wording, but it literally says, "Be prepared to apologize." Like that's just what it said. Like just be re- oh like that's just like like how can that be? A general principle. It also tells her to like... Because we tell you exactly how to feel and what's right and wrong. And if I say you have to apologize and you're wrong, then you do. It's that simple. I don't know what's confusing about it that also, to you. Right, exactly. It also says like you should talk to people that you wouldn't normally talk to, which is also just a really... Like, you do you... Like, what are you... What? Like... What if I don't talk to certain people? Like, she's been there for years. Like, she talks to people that she talks to and doesn't talk to people she doesn't talk to. When you work somewhere for years and years in a huge corporation, there's people you don't even, like, you just know you don't like them. You know, you don't get along with them. Or you don't see them. You never work with them. Yeah. Also, by the way, everybody, she works from home. Who? Talk to who? Is it to whom? Like, I'm just saying, like, talk. What are you? I don't know. It's ridiculous. It's like a waste of time. And but I was more. But it's more everywhere. Enter- more yeah. entertaining was your Slack group, but not. Mm. That's not entertaining either. I think we could talk about something totally unrelated to this because that stuff is just ridiculous. But it's just so well. Can I annoying that it keeps that? coming up? I feel like this is my. This is the only point I have to make about this. Okay. This is like. Uh, I don't even want to say elite, like the controllers, like this is their topic. Like they want people talking about this nonstop and that's why we're talking about it nonstop. And that bothers me, you know, because they're like, create. it's like when someone creates a straw man argument, like like that you're not making, but they're like battling you on something and you're like, it's very much so when are you going to stop beating your wife? And it's like, I have. Now I have to tell you how much I don't beat my wife and like, the, like this right. is not the argument I want. It's like, a false I don't even premise. Wanna, yeah, I don't even want to be talking about this. Like this isn't happening. And I heard recently on another podcast, Conspiracy Social Club, a.k.a. Deep Waters, a.k.a. Highway to the Danger Zone. I don't know what the name of this podcast. It's Sam Tripoli and Brian Callen. Brian Callen 
is like a comedian slash actor. So he knows a lot of Hollywood people. And he recently said on a podcast with Sam Tripoli that in Hollywood, because I guess he would know that they recently, all these like DEI people, like the diversity people that are like, you have to have all this kind of diversity. Apparently all Mm -hmm. got like, they're like all gone. Like they just had to get rid of them. And he was saying that the reason is they're like, yo, it's not legal anymore. Also though, like we have, he was saying, he thinks it's because it's not working and they keep like making these movies and TV shows and they're Mm. just not doing well. And they're like, we have to stop. We have to make money. Like we cannot keep forcing these ridiculous plot lines that nobody wants to see. Nobody buys them. They're not realistic. They're not helping. It's hurting us. I don't know. Right. I don't know if it, I don't right. even know it's what's I don't even know what's true. Like I don't know. I don't know. Like yeah. it's just cuz I don't I like don't I said well, I'm like building buildings and doing work like what it doesn't it's not, nothing's happening. You're just making me talk about things like it's happening. <sighs> yeah, the only thing I wanted to bring yeah. up was that Slack thread. This happened where I work. But anyway, someone posted this thing about the Supreme Court case that we talked about, the Creative LLC v. Alanis, which was the designer who said she wasn't going to be forced to create gay messages on her custom websites just because Colorado law told her she had to. And the Supreme Court said, yes, Colorado law cannot force you to say gay messages because they can't compel your speech. And so, and this is the point I wanted to get to, and then we can stop talking about this because it's really annoying. Really annoying. <laughs> Was that these people, their brains are on off mode, okay? Their brains have been turned off. And how do I know that? Is because it's in rest mode. One yeah. <laughs> of the people on this thread, they their pronouns on their profile oh my in God, this application my are we, they. And I would just like to we could we just act it out right now. We're just gonna do a little bit here. Yeah. These are this is literal basic basic grammar. You're using the first person plural, plural. for for yes. it's like, well, oh my god, that is so hard to think about. Like right. it would be like, where did she go to eat last night? You would be like, Where did we go to eat last night? And it's like, I didn't go to eat with you. No, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about that person over there, and you're and like, this is a real what? Per- what are you saying like, to me right this is now? A r- this person isn't joking. Like that's what's not crazy. Joking. It's not a joke. I, are you sure they work there? Like, is this a real person? Like, they how work can- there. Yeah. What? So what is if <laughs> if you if your first person singular is no no it's not a, oh my god it's so confusing what do you what does that person how does that person use first person plural. Like, what would they say? So if, if, I don't know. If, okay, I'm just going to use their actual, I know, I'm going to use their actual <laughs> pronouns. Like 4D calculus. So she went to eat last night with her friend. Okay. If she's telling me that, what does she say instead of we? Because we means he. So what My does, second what, person singular. Right, so, so what do they what does that person sorry, say? Third person singular. It's so convoluted. So I can't imagine how they could even have a coherent conversation that involves uh, 
mention the other individuals. It's not coherent. It's not it's possible. It's completely incoherent. It's impossible. It makes no sense. And that's how I know their brains are off. And these people yes. are just literally tyrants who want to compel you to do what they say. Because that's if they're like, my pronouns are we, it doesn't make any sense. But you have to do it because I said it. And you have to respect my rats as a blah, blah, blah member of this community. Which is the whole thing. It all folded in on itself because I was like, these people cannot tolerate, literally tolerate, they are not tolerant of a diversity of opinion. I think, I, honest <laughs> to God, this is, this is what I think is wrong with that person. I think they, like I'm not joking. This is not funny. It's not a joke. It's not, this is not, <laughs> not a joke, folks. I think, like I, okay, I get, I actually, like if, okay, it would make more sense if she had her pronouns be you mean if we if had our pronouns no if we had (laughs) i don't know what the other word is because in her world pronouns we had their pronouns (laughs) oh my god God. because if it would make more sense if they had just made up like one of those made up ones like we had just made up you bigot yes sorry i'm gonna be bigoted if if zim had had said z is my pronoun. I would, that actually, I could figure out, because then I could say, if I went to dinner with Zim, then I could say, we went to dinner, and then someone could say, who? I said, me and Zim over there. Or, you know, and then that would, at least you could go, <laughs> oh, okay, I kind of get it. I sort of, but like, we doesn't make sense because that makes because now you have to come up with a new word yes. for what we You're usually said other we people's for people's words yeah well what the fuck do you say yeah, if you and no. your friend went somewhere is it also we i don't because know. i don't I, so know. this is what i think i think they think that the that we think God. i think sorry i think her <laughs> thinks that <laughs> when they when you put pronouns like if you were to tell someone oh my pronouns are this and this is okay this is actually a deep, like not deep, because this is a stupid com- conversation. <laughs> this is but very I think, deep. <laughs> but I think in a way this is deep because what that person thinks is going on is is they are so self-obsessed and self-absorbed mm. that they don't realize that when somebody says, my pronouns are z zer that what those pronouns are for are for people to refer to you. But I think what they think is Other that- Other people to refer so to. I, right. So I think that if you ask that person what when the we is used, that that's their self-referential pronoun. So I think she would say when she goes out to dinner by herself, I think what she's saying is she would go, we went to dinner. But but that meant by herself. Like I think that's how confused she is. That she doesn't even realize oh that the first God. pronoun that you're making up is Whoa. supposed to be a pronoun that I refer to you as. But I think she uses Whew. we to refer to herself. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like she because yeah. she's probably like is, two spirit whoa. or something. So she's yeah. literally getting it wrong. Like you're like wrong on two levels. Like you don't even understand why your community is putting their pronouns there. It's not for self-referential pronouns. It's for other people to refer to you and you're giving your I 
Yeah, like that's so how self-obsessed like they you are. Were saying it's really because that's so revealing about how these people think about it. It's not about like fostering relationships and connections with people as they claim it is. It's really about declaring your identity, which it's like that literally doesn't matter to the rest of us. It's like, okay, whatever. Like, I just need to know how to interact with you and how to have a relationship with you, okay? Yeah, it's literally like, I've heard this recently, and it's it's a funny, not hilarious, but funny comeback when people give you their pronouns like that, is you could just say, don't worry, I will not be talking about you with other people. Like, oh my God. Like, I don't crazy. need to know those. I'll never talk about you. Oh, God. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Whatever. But let me. I, let's, I don't let's know make... how to not take it as a joke. Like, because I've. This is the other crazy thing about it. Sorry. And then we can get off of this topic or whatever. But you literally cannot distinguish between someone doing satire or making a joke and someone being real, which is a real problem. Like, if you are in this community, like, if I jokingly and kind of like wanted to make fun of this community, like, like if you wanted meeting, to write an article for The Onion. Sure. Yeah. Or like in a meeting a where I was like thing. literally trying to antagonize these people. I was like, my pronouns are she, them, ours. And then some like, and that was a joke. What would happen? Like no one could be like, people would no, take you're you just seriously. joking with us. It would be like, I would just say, well, no, those are my pronouns. And then they would be like, it would just be my word against theirs. And this is the whole fundamental problem is that there's no social negotiation. It's just someone gets to decide for everyone else. And that's a real problem. It's so confusing. And we have, English is such an interesting language. Other languages, like if you ever took another, like Spanish, French, they have a whole, their pronouns mean actually a lot more and affect the language a lot more. Like the endings of, of words, like if you were to say the new instead of on, which are both we, and then you conjugated the rest of the sentence even using the proper conjugation for the first person or the first person plural, it would just, you couldn't even, you can't even switch those conjugations. It's yeah, too, it's you know what I mean? It's another beast. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. So the fact that anyway. you can do, like English is, I think, a great target for this kind of psychopathy or like, oh, yeah. Or whatever this is. It's just, I can't anymore. It's crazy. <laughs> I, I know. just can't. Did well, you, we can get off it, but did, did you I, watch, go on. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to take a hard turn off the topic, but if you want to say anything oh, else. Oh, well, I do want to read this thing. It's like a detour and it'll open up new conversational possibilities, but it also is very revealing of what's going on here from a psychological point of view. So I did want to read this thing from Young. Ding, ding, ding. All of you listeners, we're back to Young. So... Strap I wish in. I could find my sound thing. I have a little thing I really want to incorporate. It's fine. I have a mouth harp. Oh my god! Yeah, get that out. Doing. <laughs> Ding. Oh my god. Okay, so I have it up. I just—it's a lot, and I'm trying to figure out where to start um, so that we don't have to read so much. In former times, sorry. Wait, what, what are you reading from? Yeah. yeah. So this is psychological aspects of the mother archetype. From Carl Jung. Mm. Uh, I think this is from 1938. Later revised and published in 1954. Which, 
We're not really going to get into the mother archetype part necessarily, but his opening talks about this really, really interesting change in our thinking as a society and kind of like makes predictions about what's to come. So in former times, despite some dissenting opinion and the influence of Aristotle, it was not too difficult to understand Plato's conception of the idea as superordinate and pre-existent to all phenomena. Archetype, far from being a modern term, was already in use before the time of St. Augustine and was synonymous with idea in the Platonic usage. So archetype literally means primal model, primal model or pre-existent form, and he's saying that's synonymous with idea and that Plato argued that the idea was sort of the superordinate and pre-existent phenomena to all things that actually, you know, materially manifest to us. So he goes on to say, when the Corpus Hermeticum, which probably dates from the third century, describes God as the archetypal light, it expresses the idea that he is the prototype of all light, the pre-existent form, the archetype. That is to say, pre-existent and superordinate to the phenomenon light. So that's what I was just saying, is that the idea, there's a pre-existent form or model. God is like the pre-existent form or model of the physical manifestation of light. It's like the idea of light, the, the something underneath that we can't directly observe. So he says, were I a philosopher, I should continue in this platonic strain and say, somewhere in a place beyond the skies, there is a prototype or primordial image of the mother that is pre-existent and superordinate to all phenomena in which the maternal in the broadest sense of the term, is manifest. So that's just an example of what we're talking about. And then he says, but I'm an empiricist, not a philosopher. I cannot let myself presume that my peculiar temperament, my own attitude, blah, 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 blah. So he goes on to keep talking about it. It so happens, by the merest accident, one might say that for the past 200 years, we have been living in an age in which it has become unpopular or even unintelligible to suppose that ideas could be anything but nomina. Anyone who continues to think as Plato did must pay for his anachronism by seeing the supracelestial, metaphysical essence of the idea relegated to the unverifiable realm of faith and superstition or charitably left to the poet. Once again, in the age-old controversy over universals, the nominalistic standpoint has triumphed over the realistic and the idea has evaporated. So... Nominalism, this idea that he's talking about that sort of superseded this idea that Plato, you know, uh, argued for, which was that ideas are superordinate. There's something, some primordial form, something beyond what we can see that's actually the true thing. Nominalism is the counter opinion. It's the doctrine that states that universals or general ideas are merely names without any corresponding reality. So it's, this is also kind of the origin of like critical theory and stuff, like these people who argue that language is all constructed and socially constructed and you know, it doesn't refer to anything real, it's all just social and people just agree on it. That's the same idea as like nominalism, essentially. And so he's saying, you know, Plato argued for the idea being primary and it flies in the face of nominalism, but he's saying nominalism has become the reasoning and thinking of the age. He's like, that is actually the popular 
take on how to interpret things. And he's like, people actually kind of reject you and they laugh at you if you in, uh, endorse ideas like Plato did, that the idea is primary, that there's something beyond what we can see, that names point to something real. And so he goes on to keep uh, saying, and we'll get to the point here in a second, um, this change, the move toward nominalism and away from the idea as being primary, was accompanied and indeed to a considerable degree caused by the marked rise of empiricism. This thesis, the nominalistic thesis, runs as follows. We accept as valid anything that comes from outside and can be verified. The ideal instance is verification by experiment. The antithesis is we accept as valid anything that comes from inside and cannot be verified. The hopelessness of this position is obvious. Greek natural philosophy, with its interest in matter, together with Aristotelian reasoning, has achieved a belated but overwhelming victory over Plato. So he's sort of saying that Plato thought, you know, there's something actually that does come from the inside. It emanates from the inside. We can't verify it directly. We have to induce its existence. That's the idea. That's the life source of all the things that we see and encounter. And he's saying that that has been rejected in favor of empiricism, that the only real things are things that come from the outside and can be verified. If it be true that there can be no metaphysics transcending human reasoning, it is no less true that there can be no empirical knowledge that is not already caught and limited by the a priori structure, the a priori structure of cognition. The conviction has gradually gained ground that thinking, understanding, and reasoning cannot be regarded as independent processes subject only to the eternal laws of logic, but that, here's the key point, they are psychic functions coordinated with the personality and subordinate to it. We no longer ask, has this or that been seen, heard, handled, weighed, counted, thought, and found to be logical? We ask instead, who saw, heard, or thought? Beginning with the personal equation in the observation and measurement of minimal processes. This critical attitude has gone on to the creation of an empirical psychology such as no time before ours has known. Today, we are convinced that in all fields of knowledge, psychological premises exist which exert a decisive influence upon the choice of material, the method of investigation, the nature of the conclusions, and the formulation of the hypotheses and theories. We have even come to believe that Kant's personality was a decisive conditioning factor of his critique of pure reason. Not only our philosophers, but our own predilections in philosophy, and even what we are fond of calling our best truths are affected, if not dangerously undermined, by this recognition of a personal premise. Anyway, so that's the point. So I wanted to stop there. That's a lot. But he's pointing out this really interesting shift in our thinking where we've gone from universal ideas being the source of things to this sort of dogmatic uh, ideology that everything is personal, everything is up to the individual. And so there can be no truth outside of the individual, which is so interesting because that's what the critical theorists seem to think is that truth is subjective. Mm -hmm. And that was the kind of thing, this is what I wanted to get to is, so it's so interesting to analyze 
what was going on in that thread about the Supreme Court case because what I noticed was this dichotomy as exactly as Young pointed out between who and what. And the people who were like coming at me and who I felt could not understand the case were so obsessed with who. They were so obsessed with who was being discriminated against. Or who wrote the majority opinion. Or who wrote the majority. Like only liberal justices can have correct opinions because correct opinions come from an ideology. They come from your personality, the person that you are, not from their adherence to any logical universal. And so it's so interesting because they couldn't see the what and like, how do the arguments that they're making, not the people, how do the arguments, how are those conservative or ideological or logical? And it's so interesting because they literally, I felt like could not, they could not think that way. They could not understand that what they were doing was analyzing people at the level of the person, at the level of their identity, which is the very thing that they claim to be oppressive, to analyze someone on the basis or discriminate on to, to someone on the basis of their mere identity as opposed to on the basis of their work or on the basis of their character. So I thought that was so interesting. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think Young was really saying? So I think Young is sort of saying, like, we need to get back to this philosophy of the idea of being primary and that the, you know, sort of... Uh, understanding of our age and time is that only the external world, like this empiricism, is what's valid, which is exactly what we've talked about before. Well, it, it, yeah, because so, like, the country being founded on, like, these principles, you know, uh, freedom, life, liberty, you know, these kind of fundamentals are more of the, like, so those in this new way of thinking go out the window because it's not, that's not, like, those are like forms and like ideals. Yes, and exactly. Ideas and we can't, who cares about those, you know, and people, so they start making arguments like for the Second Amendment, for example. Well, they didn't have the kinds of guns we have now. They didn't have the kinds of this, you know, they didn't have these kinds of problems, which is uh, bullshit. And we know that because like we've been saying, as we like analyze some of these things uh, legally or socially or whatever, we see that what is happening is that, like, so Kant had this thing called categorical imperatives and like universalizable, just to be simple about it, like ideas. So like if something is an imperative, it has to be universalizable. You have to be able to apply it across the board and that it still kind of works. And these people are not doing that anymore not even not even that so whether you have a problem with Kant or not but they're, they're literally just looking at their their one single personal case right right and it's say, about the and, person and that's exactly right. what happened in the supreme court case is like like what we discussed in that other episode is like it's not like so you see this dichotomy where the quote-unquote conservative judges were using principles for their argument there's like here's the legal principles that we have to apply in this specific court case. And then you saw what the quote-unquote liberal argument, which was about literally like using statistics and like empiricism to endorse why a certain decision should be made on moral grounds. Like they were saying, well, the average income of blacks and the average income of whites is so different. And that means that 
there's a huge disparity and so there is discrimination and we can't have discrimination against minorities and whatever. Not seeing that there's like something deeper beyond just the reality of wealth inequality, but there's a idea, there's something of substance underneath that that is being made manifest through wealth inequality, but it is not wealth inequality itself. Well, or wealth inequality for one specific group, because that's how this this racial doctrine and everything, people start to recognize it. Like, well, you just want to reverse the racism. Like, you just want to reverse the discrimination, but like literally, like you literally want to like hold down one to to raise another kind of thing. Present discrimination is the only form or only solution to past discrimination. That's Ibram X. Kendi. Does he actually say that? That's a quote, yes. That's oh, a quote fantastic. by Ibram X. Kendi. Yeah. Fantastic, great. No Which is cited in these DE&I courses. Um, yeah, and then the last thing I wanted to say that's kind of interesting about what Young said there is like, so if you do take this sort of like empiricism, that things only exist once they can be verified, and then he goes on to talk about the children. He's like, okay, so children, there's no like personality being developed that pre-exists the actual manifestation of it. And so he's like, that is the kind of view you have to take in order to think things like children are tabula rasas and you can just pour ideas into them. You can just meld them into whatever you want them to be, that they don't have individual character and individual personality that's unique and is pre-existent. And so that's so interesting because that's like, I feel like the same kind of ideology that's really gripped our culture is like, well, we can just tell kids that men can be women and women can be men. That's not a universal. Those are socially constructed things. And if you just tell children they're tabula rasas and they'll just, you know, adopt it and they can take that on and that can be a new truth for them. It doesn't depend on their individual personality or character. Well, and the problem is that that's partially true, but it doesn't actually, that's, it's true that you can do that, but it doesn't make what you do true. Right, right, right. And it reminds me, too, of something our mom has said. You know, it's, like, so revealing and insightful, I think, where she's, like, when I was a parent, when I started, you know, with my first kid, I guess that would be you. That'd be Sorry. me. Um, she was, like, I thought I was God. Like, I could just make the kid I had good or, you know, I could shape them. I was going to, you know, be the arbiter of their personality and who they would become. And then, you know, she sort of reflects on that and says – but I realize I'm not God and my kids are who they are and I don't really have any control over that. And I can shape them, you know, help them become the best version of who they are, but she's but I can't change who they are. And I think that that's such a interesting departure from what you see like extreme, I don't even know what to call them, liberals think, which is like, we can shape the kids, like we can make them tolerant, we can make them diverse we can make them think all these things like we can make them obedient we you know it's like complete control of yeah the personality which i don't think young is advocating for like that there's no control or influence i'm thinking he's just saying that there's something there there's some middle ground and if you reject universals and it's all personal then you end up somewhere that's completely illogical completely doesn't make any sense well, you end up in our society. <laughs> yes. You end up with yeah, people you... that say that the second person that, yeah, they that they just switch, they're like literally just switching around pronouns. They're like, I'll use we for I and 
I'll use they for for singular and I'll it's like what are you what are you doing like you can do that but it it's like doesn't interestingly like you could say like what's the like you realize that they don't that's actually they don't even want that to be universalizable they don't want everyone they don't to, believe in universals right yeah. so they not so it's not that everybody should adopt that they want people to all individually choose different shit and that that doesn't even work it completely de- like it just destroys the even concept of community right exactly exactly yeah like it's literally in the name of collectivism let's destroy collective cohesion right right you're like destroying universals the things that are the underlying fabric and foundation of community are universal things that can be recognized by a collective and then you're like well no there's none of that it's all subjective there are no universals that can be recognized collectively and so then you just have literally what they say we have which is a domination of power like you have forces competing for domination like well, this is the way I, it is because I said it is. And so whoever just shouts the loudest or has the most power to enforce those things, that's what's correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's wrong. It's, it's wrong. It's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, well, that was deep. What were you going to talk about, though? We can shift gears. Well, I was thinking about playing this video. I didn't remember. I didn't remember it being this long, but... It is kind of long, but I've brought this guy up a couple times throughout the episodes and I've never remembered his name, so I've never said his name, <laughs> but I was exposed to him in, it, yeah, what class was that? It was at the University of Georgia in like human geography or something. And the guy's name is David Harvey and he's a British geographer so it makes sense uh let's see they describe him as a british-born marxist economic geographer oh shit he has a podcast oh my god oh wait a minute his wikipedia has changed since the last time i looked at it oh distinguished professor of anthropology geography at the graduate center of the university of new york he is in 2007 Harvey was listed as the 18th most cited author of books in the humanities on social sciences in that year. Uh, they used to describe him as kind of one of the preeminent Marxist thinkers of some ex- to some extent. So he did this talk that's been animated that I sent you. Um, should I play it? I can play a chunk of it. It's about 10 minutes but it's okay i read like 20 minutes of young or something so let's just go for it it's a let's long see, form podcast let's we're see having long form conversation yeah exactly let's see what this guy says so i guess i can read this little thing here so you know where it's coming from david harvey addressed a crowd in the heart of london's financial district early in november 2011 so i'm trying to figure out what so he starts out by talking about a a recent crisis maybe 2008 2009 financial crisis that's probably what he's talking about so anyways i just wanted to say what that was because he starts out with okay so we've uh, been through this crisis and uh, there are all sorts of uh, explanatory formats out there 
and it's interesting to look at the different genres. One genre is that it's all about human frailty. I mean, Alan Greenspan took refuge in the fact it's human nature, he said, and you can't do anything about that. But there's a whole world of explanations that kind of say it's uh, the predatory instincts, it's the instincts for mastery, it's the delusions of investors and the greed and, and all the rest of it. So there's a whole range of discussion of that. And, of course, the more we learn about the daily practices on Wall Street, we kind of uh, figure there's a great deal of truth in all of that. The second genre is that there's institutional failures. The you know, regulators were asleep at the switch. The shadow banking system innovated outside of their purview, etc., 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 and therefore institutions have to be reconfigured and it has to be a global effort by the G20, something of that kind. So we look at the institutional level and say that has failed and that has to be reconfigured. The third genre is to say everybody was obsessed with a false theory. They read too much Hayek and believed in the efficiency of markets and it's time we actually got back to something like uh, Keynes or we took seriously uh, Hyman Minsky's theory about the inherent instability of financial activities. The next uh, genre is that this is, it has cultural origins. Now, we don't hear that much in the United States, but if you were in Germany and France, uh, many people there would kind of say, this is an Anglo-Saxon disease and, and uh, it's nothing to do with us. Uh, and uh, I happened to be in Brazil when it was going on, and Lula was kind of saying, well, first off he was saying, oh, thank God the United States has been disciplined by the equivalent of the IMF. We've been through it eight times in the last 25 years, and now it's their turn. Fantastic, said Lula, and all the Latin Americans I knew, until it hit them, which it does. And then they kind of changed their tune a little bit. So there's a kind of a, a way of which it got, became cultural. And you can see that, by the way, in which the, 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 this whole Greek thing is being handled. The way the German press is saying, well, it's the Greek character. It's defects in the Greek character. And, and there's a lot of rather nasty stuff going on around that. But actually, there are some cultural features which have led into it. For instance, the U.S. fascination with home ownership which is supposedly a deep cultural value. So 67, 68% of U.S. households are homeowners. It's only 22% in Switzerland. Of course, it's a cultural value in the United States that's been supported by the mortgage interest tax deduction, which is a huge subsidy. Uh, it's been promoted since the 1930s. Very explicitly in the 1930s, it was built up because the theory was that debt-encumbered homeowners don't go on strike. Okay. I'm just going to pause it for a second. I have no idea if like we'll get flagged for playing this whole thing, but <laughs> I'm gonna call it fair yeah. use. But the um, I just want to point out. I think it's interesting that to think about this point, the mortgage tax deduction being a subsidy, and so who is that a subsidy for? Like it's interesting because as someone who would be paying taxes, you think, well, no, you're just not taking as much of my money as you would otherwise basically, right? Something along those mm -hmm. lines. But he's thinking of it in terms of, well, you're subsidizing the mortgage industry by giving them more business, by giving the customers who give them business a benefit. So an incentive to interact with the mortgage industry and to get by more mortgages. So I just thought that's an interesting kind of flip, you know, of a, of kind of the individualist perspective, maybe what like a libertarian or conservative would think of as like, well, yeah, don't, don't tax me, you know, give me the deduction. It's my money anyways, versus this kind of 
collectivist Marxist way of thinking, which is what you're subsidizing an industry, a mortgage industry, the the building industry. I don't know. I just thought that was interesting way to think about it. But uh, we can go on. And then there's a kind of notion that there's a failure of policy and that policy has actually intervened. And there's a funny kind of alliance emerging between the Glenn Beck wing of uh, Fox News and the World Bank, both of whom say the problem is too much regulation of the wrong sort. So there are all of, these, all of these ways, and all of them have a certain truth. And skilled writers will take one or other of those perspectives and build a story and, and actually write a very plausible kind of story about this. And I thought to myself, well, what kind of plausible story can I write, which is none of the above, uh, which is one of the things I always think to myself. And it's not hard to do, particularly if you're coming from a Marxist perspective, because, you know, there aren't many people who try to do this analysis from a Marxist perspective. And I was really, really clued into this why, by this... Uh, uh, thing that happened at the London School of Economics uh, about a year and a half ago when Her Majesty the Queen asked the economists, how come you guys didn't see this thing coming? I mean, she didn't say it exactly that way, but, you know, it's just the sentiment. <laughs> and, and they got very upset, and then she actually called the bank of, governor of the Bank of England and said, how come you didn't see it coming? And, and, and then the British Academy put forward this, got all together, all of these economists, and they came up with this fabulous letter to Her Majesty. And it was, an, 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 it was, it was absolutely astonishing. It said, well... You know, many dedicated people, intelligent, smart, spent their lives working on aspects of this thing very, very seriously. But the one thing we missed was systemic risk. And you say, what? <laughs> and then it went on to talk about a politics of denial and all the rest of it. So I thought, well, you know, systemic risk, you know, I can translate it into the Marxian thing. You're talking about the internal contradictions of capital accumulation. And maybe I should write a thing about the internal contradictions of capital accumulation and try to figure out the role of crises in the whole history of capitalism and what's specific and special about the crisis this time around. And there were two ways in which I thought I would do that. One was to sort of look at what's happened since 1970s to now. And the thesis there is that in many ways the form of this current crisis is dictated very much by the way we came out of the last one. That the problem back in the 1970s was excessive power of labor in relationship to capital that therefore the way out of the crisis last time was to discipline labor. And we know how that was done. It was done by offshoring. It was done by, you know, Thatcher and Reagan. And it was done by neoliberal doctrine. It was done all kinds of different ways. But by 1985 or 86, the labor question had essentially been solved for capital. It had access to all of the world's labor supplies. Nobody in this particular instance has cited greedy unions as the root of the crisis. Nobody in this instance is saying it has anything to do with, with excessive power of labor. If anything, it's the excessive power of capital, and in particular the excessive power of finance capital, which is the root of the problem. Now, how did that happen? Well, I remember from my first go-round with this talk that that was... I thought that that point was very, very key, that it's particular kind of capital, finance capital. Well, we've been since the 1970s in a phase of what we call wage repression, that wages have been remained stagnant. The share of wages in national income right throughout the OECD countries has, has steadily fallen. It's even steadily fallen in China, of all places. So that there are less and less being paid out in wages. Well, Wages turn out to be also the money which buys goods. So if you diminish wages, then you've got a problem with where's your demand going to come from? And the answer was, well, get out your credit cards. We'll give everybody credit cards. 
So we'll overcome, if you like, the problem of effective demand by actually pumping up the credit economy. And American households, British households, have all roughly tripled their debt over the last 20, 30 years. And a vast amount of that debt, of course, has been in, in, within uh, the housing market. And, and out of this comes a theory, which is very, very important, that, that capitalism never solves its crisis problems. It moves them around geographically. And what we're seeing right now is a geographical movement of that. Everybody says, well, okay, everything's beginning to recover in the United States, and then Greece goes bang, and everybody says, what about the pigs, you know? And it's interesting. You had a finance crisis which is in the financial system. Pigs, Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece, Spain. That's what the pigs countries are. You've sort of half solved that, but at the expense, expense of a sovereign debt crisis. Actually, if you look at the accumulation process of capital, you see a number of limits and a number of barriers. And there's a wonderful language that Marx uses in the Grundrisse, where he talks about the way in which capital cannot abide a limit. It has to turn it into a barrier which it then circumvents or transcends. And then when you look at the accumulation process, you look at where the barriers and, and, and limits might lie. And the simple way to look at it is to say, look, a typical, the typical circulation process of accumulation goes like this. You start with some money, you go into the market and you buy labor power and means of production, and you put that them to work with a given technology and organizational form. You create a commodity, which you then sell for the original money plus a profit. Now, you then take part of the profit and you recapitalize it into an expansion for very interesting reasons. Now, there are two things about this. One is there are a number of barrier points in here. How is the money got together in the right place at the right time in the right, in the right volume? And that takes financial ingenuity. So the whole history of capitalism has been about financial innovation. And financial innovation has the effect of also empowering the financiers. And the excessive power of the financiers can sometimes, they, get, they do get greedy, no question about it. And if you look at financial profits in the United States, they were soaring after 1990. They're going up like this. Profits in manufacturing were coming down like this. And you could see the imbalance. In this country, I think the way in which this country has sided with the city of London against British manufacturing since the 1950s onwards has had very serious implications for the economy of this country. You've actually screwed industry in order to keep you know, financiers uh, happy. Any sensible person right now would join an anti-capitalist organization. And, and you have to, because otherwise we're going to have this con the continuation. And notice it's a continuation of all sorts of negative aspects. For instance, the racking up of wealth. You would have thought the crisis would have stopped that. Actually, more billionaires emerged in India last year than ever. They doubled last year. The wealth of the rich, I just read something this morning, in this country has, has, has accelerated. Just two years, just last year, what happened was the main leading hedge fund owners got personal remunerations of $3 billion each in one year. Now, I thought it was obscene and insane a few years ago when they got $250 million. But they're now hauling in $3 billion. Now, that's not a word I, world I want to live in, and if you want to live in it, be my guest. I don't see us debating and discussing this. I don't have the solutions. I think I know what the nature of the problem is. And unless we're prepared to have a very broad-based discussion that gets away from, you know, the normal kind of pablum you get in the political campaign and, you know, everything's going to be okay here next year if you vote for me, you know, it's crap. You should, you should, you should know it's crap and, 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 and say it is.
And, and we have a duty, it seems to me, those of us who are academics and seriously involved in the world, to actually change our mode of thinking. I don't know what is happening to the uh, visual there. I guess that was the end of it. Um, let me hit hmm. this button. So, what do you think? Interesting little talky talk, eh? I'm a Marxist now. Right, right. That's <laughs> what I thought you would say. No, so this is the thing about serious, not DEI Marxists, but like serious academic Marxists. And it's the thing about Karl Marx himself that people throughout the ages, well, it hadn't been that long, but throughout the ages have noted about Marx, I think even quite, uh, some, I think you could even come across uh, some libertarian types who would agree that Marx himself did actually identify some interesting things. Yeah. Um, well, those are and, real problems that he pointed out. That's the biggest thing. Yes. I mean, the financial economy, that is something I've noticed before that is absolutely bonkers. Like, why is it that you go into any city in the United States and the biggest, uh, most luxurious area of the town is the financial district? What? They don't even produce anything of value. They just pad the money from one place to another, and somehow they're scraping off the top more than any other industry is able to make. And they get and they fuck up, ruin the economies, and get paid out for it. Just right. get free money for it. Just here you go. Here's here's trillions of dollars. Here you go. So I would, I'm definitely apprehensive to agree with a Marxist geographer or economic thinker, but I think that there is something. I think one of the things again most interesting is this like concept of capitalism in this kind of broad way that we use the word and that there's also a financial capitalism and that the way that this financial capital really took hold seems according to David Harvey to have been fomented by the wage problem that if you if wages stay stagnant or are suppressed and they are I mean they always go up you know in theory but not at the rate of everything else, not at the rate of inflation, not the rate, mm -hmm. not at an, a logical rate. So wages, they say, are sticky. They don't move enough. And that's a capitalist uh, happy thing. You know, it's good for the, for not, not for all capitalists, but for the financial capitalists. Because what they did was to work around the fact that for some reason these wages won't go up, which is worth thinking about because you, what you'd like to think there are some capitalists out there who would like to look like the Henry Ford model. He wanted to pay everybody in his factory so well that they could actually afford the product that was coming out the other end of the factory. So that's mm. one way of being a capitalist, right? Whether what Henry Ford did ultimately was good or bad. I don't know. I mean, a lot of what he was doing through this kind of, because we've criticized, which is also probably a Marxist criticism to some extent, this kind of like, I'm a guy who just turns a bolt in a factory. I'm disconnected right. from the product of my labor as f even like emotionally, psychically. It's, it's not, I'm just a guy that turns a bolt. I want to kill myself. This is a horrible living. I'm not making. It's terrible. But yeah. At the same time, I think in the Henry Ford case, it was, well, the product that's coming out the other side has to be at such a quantity, such a volume, 
and for such a low price that you can actually afford one if you work here. So what you end up having is, well, we have to create the system, this assembly line, this factory kind of environment. Now, all you're going to be doing is turning this bolt, but you are going to be able to afford the car. So I think there's multiple questions going on here. One of those is this is is that there's a premise of of okay the car is fantastic right it's a fantastic innovation the fact that we can all have one but with that model of Henry Ford which seems maybe a little better than some others than not being able to afford the car um, has done certain things it's has uh, to some extent disconnected you from the product of your labor but it's also based on the premise of a consumption consumerism really you know that like the ultimate goal here is to be able to buy the nice thing to get that right, nice thing right. and so the problem is not that henry ford did this because henry ford was not the worst guy in the world i mean he did he would allow people to be the bolt turner but then they could go work on this part of the line work on this part of the line and basically become an expert it doesn't mm. change the way that the cars are made but it does give you a little bit of freedom but this model, if you think about it, the Henry Ford model has been done not just for the car, but for every single thing, for every widget, for, for whether it's a plastic top that you spin on the table to the iPhone to whatever. And you did throughout that time have this throughout the our history, which has not been long in this country, but the the geographic relocation of labor, of where they pull the labor from to do this because they want to drive those prices they want to drive their costs down is one way of thinking about it and their profits up, but maybe they want to drive the price of the item down. So you have to, because there's, it's all this, everything in capitalism, it seems is dynamic. Everything is affecting everything. So I'm okay. So my point being that there's all sorts of interesting threads to pull on within thinking about this stuff and pulling even on some information some ideas from a Marxist geographer, whatever he wants to call himself, yeah. podcaster. Um, podcaster now. He's a podcast. I cannot wait to find that podcast. So, oh my God. Because uh, people like this tend to get weird over time. I'm sure he's a psychopath now. He's probably all for DEI and everything. But uh, we'll find out and we'll report back. But you know, you know what I'm saying? So, okay, so the financial capital thing... So wages are down. They're not moving because capital also wants those, some capital also wants those wages to stay down because the, they're paid out by the capitalist. So I have to pay my wages mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. I have to pay enough that you can get stuff. But now the capitalist system, all the corporations and you know everything has is, is been affected just as much by this financial capitalism. So they're reliant on that system as well. But once they get the labor reliant on credit, that gives an unbelievable amount of power to the sector of the economy known as financial, what we could call financial capitalist, the financial capital market. And it is ultimately, I mean, this is maybe not the ultimate conclusion, but I'd like to say that it, it starts to look a lot like a financial slavery especially under this model that is very circular. And yeah, well, I thought the point about like the transference of crises from one geographical area to another due to the 
international flow of capital was a really interesting idea that like instead of us dealing with our own financial crises, we can sort of invent financial waves of the wand, you know, to move the crises from one geographic area to another by the movement and interesting financial rigmarole uh, that uh, the financial capital markets do. And so he you know, pointed out Greece. He's like, all of a sudden, Greece was in financial trouble. And um, yeah, because I think once you get away from the fundamental principle of spending less than you make, and I don't mean like a monetary amount. That's just like a general principle, like eating less than your harvest or, you know, not eating all of your crop and saving some for the winter. And if you don't abide by that fundamental, kind of back to the universalism that we talked about, that fundamental principle, well, then you're out of alignment with reality. And I feel like a correction is due. And so I feel like in order to avoid that scenario where we have a United States government and a United States citizenry who's way overspent above out, you know, over their skis or whatever, that we have to, yeah, invent these uh, financial manipulations in order to prevent us from uh, realizing the the reality almost or just the consequence of what we're doing, which is overspending ourselves. And so, yeah, I feel like that's how you could maybe explain some of what's going on. But it, yeah, it's an interesting theory. I thought the labor thing too is also another good point. It's like, yeah, because the people who pay the labor are um, obviously the business owners and whatnot. And so they're incentivized as well as investors to maximize profits and labor is a cost. And so you obviously you're incentivized to keep costs down, to keep the cost of labor down. Yeah. And, and Harvey says, you know, that, he admits, like, I don't have the answer, but I'm pointing out right. how things operate. And so somewhere in here is a problem. And what what do you do in that case? And I think that's what I was kind of touching on is that it's the problem is you have to be able to think in like 50 dimensions at the same time. You have to be able to consider phenomenon like inflation and deflation and wage who pays the wage? How does right. the wage All move? Of this How sticky craziness. is it? Craziness. Yeah. How much access to labor do these people have? Where is that labor? Where, what are the crises that are occurring? What are they trying to work their way around? What are, you know, so you have, because if you go back to like one of the examples that you just brought up, like very simply, that, you know, don't eat all your crops and you can have some for the winter or whatever. Well, there's also, so part of that, like, like what you were talking about is, you know, prudent or uh, like savings and and being smart, basically not overconsumptive. Another piece of that is productivity and abundance, because out of that abundance that you have, to, so we could think about it as it's not just don't eat all your crops now because the winter is coming but it's don't eat all your crops now and in winter because profits are coming because a natural market there can begin to emerge so i grow you know five ten acres of corn whatever whatever i'm doing you could think about as a factory even it doesn't matter but it's easy with food because food is necessity and everybody eats it so you have like 10 acres of corn well I don't need 10 acres of corn. I need 
two acres of corn and I've got all this excess I got to get rid of that I can get rid of. I could save it, but it makes more sense to get rid of it, do it again next year, buy what I need by getting rid of it to do next year, maybe even become more productive next year. Maybe I get a new machine, a new tractor, a new plow. So like a new, so markets, natural market kind of emerges there. And I don't think. Well, that's so interesting. Horrible. Yeah, because you could think about that, but there is, yeah, there's no fail safe for the situation that might occur where, so say you do have extra and you're like, I'm going to sell it. And I'm betting that I can use that money to buy the food that I need in the winter. But say you sell it to the other guy who didn't plant enough for the winter and he's actually buying for the winter. And so now he's bought your winter reserves for his winter. So now you have no winter reserves and there are no winter reserves. Yeah. And that's well, my the kind point of price that, you that he's talking about. Yeah. My point is that you wouldn't sell the winter reserves. You would save for now. Oh, you could sell save, extra. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And save for later. And your excess is whatever's on top of that. But when you start thinking about other industries, like we talked about pencils in this regard, like once you've made, you know, a hundred pencils for yourself, <laughs> let's just say that you would even do such a thing, you're never going to need another pencil in your life. So right. you Unless you're a pencil now. hoarder and you just love right. pencils. And then every pencil is somehow equivalent in worth to you. I literally just heard a story about a pencil collector. It was crazy. But but anyway. Oh but so, <laughs> not that. so let's just get real and say that the pencil manufacturer never made a pencil because they needed a pencil. That was never the concept. Like food. Like if I grow food, I eat the food. But I don't need pencils, really. You know, but I'm... They're a I'm luxury. Just gonna, it's literally, I'm just making an item to... Right, there's some right. pencils that are needed, but like really, it's it's not for you. There's no... It's not like, well, let's... It's not based on a principle of... This is what need, a productive society needs. Right, or, need to yeah. abundance or something like that, right? So things get a little bit more interesting there, you know, uh, when you're talking about those kinds of items. Items made for no other reason than to be consumed. Uh, right. Like toys or something that are just... It, it, because food is meant to be consumed, but consumed for life to sustain, to like continue living. There are these luxury items that are just there to improve life, so they say, like toys. Mm -hmm for children or something, you know, like no, nobody's making toys because they need, they like, Oh, I love making, having toys. I want to have toys and then I'll sell what's left over. So other people can have to, I mean, that's not the principle there. So the principle is fully based on like a consumptive model. And I don't really know. Again, I'm yeah. like, I'm right there with David Harvey where I'm like, I don't really know what's going on here. Like I, I see, I see it. I understand, I understand parts of it, but I don't really see it clearly enough to understand how you even begin to address these kind of problems. But I do think that you can start with, I mean, some of the core things there were, was, in my mind, is this financial capital that because we have this wage problem, we'll just give lines of credit. So you don't have to even, don't worry if you don't have money. We'll, right, the financial you could borrow, industry you could just like, borrow there you it. go. Yeah. yeah, you just borrow it from us and then just pay us back later. This is, this is why like major world religions throughout history have had s serious problems with usury 
and right. you know, like charging interest. Too high interest, for, yeah. Or, or interest, interest at all. I mean, they were like 70 years and all debt is canceled. They were like, this is an unsustainable way to organize society. Yeah, and there's a component of this that I won't draw in, but it's revolves around like the three major world relig you know, Abrahamic religions. Oh. And, you know, there's there's tropes about who is in banking. Oh. That there's a lot yes. of uh, Jewish power in banking and <laughs> that there's, with that, the dawn of that being that I think from what I understand, if I'm correct here, is that you weren't, Jews are not allowed to, were not allowed to, I think, charge each other interest. Christians were like, we're not, we don't do that. But the Jews were allowed to do it, according to laws and their religion, to other, to to the Gentiles, basically, to non-Jews. Yeah. So hmm. they in, so they have a natural entrance into this quote unquote market or to create this kind of market. And I think that I'm not as not, I don't, I'm not saying it has anything to do with the Jews. It has literally nothing to do with them, probably. But I'm saying that it has to do or with or everything this. to do with the Jews. I'm coming up Could. with conspiracy right now. I don't think that you're coming up with that conspiracy. I think that that conspiracy has been around for a long time. I think there was wars fought over this conspiracy, but um, that there's, I mean the that conspiracy is probably a, a misidentification. It's not necessarily a misidentification because there is oh. a, a, a component where it's like That's I when so I I'm like you can point at like I like to say no like point the people out like who's the people, but it's just like pointing out like. Like people want to say, like black people are the problem. It's like not, no matter even if statistics bear that out in some way in some d dimension of whatever you're measuring. Well, again, it's not. It doesn't mean we're back to young. It doesn't. It just, it's, yeah, you're looking at a, a, you're looking at the who something instead wrong. of the what, right? And so it doesn't mean that the who, the who, is not <laughs> relevant necessarily but it's clearly not for in the case of the jewish people it's clearly not all jews not all jews are bankers like that's ridiculous there's plenty of poor jews you know what i mean there's all sorts of diversity within the group jews so that's just like a diversionary well like, but that yeah that's what's so really the problem because, is yeah yeah go on. that's the pernicious part of marxism which is like it identifies groups of people and says that these ideas are personal and that they can be tied to your identity and so anyone who happens to be find themselves related to or in an elite class, or maybe you are, you know, that's identified as the Jews. You find yourself a part of that religion or that ethnicity in the case of the Jews, because it's both. Um, well, then you can point to that and say, that's the problem. The problem is because of that identity, because that socially constructed truth is the poison that's rotting society. Instead of stepping back and saying, no, it's not who they are. It's what is happening. Like, what, how is what we're doing or what is going on in different parts of society violating the eternal laws of nature or God or logic or reason or whatever? And it's like, that's, I think, really the point that Jung was making. It's like, there's this misidentification with personal truth that like, that we're identifying the who, like the people, that those, those are the problem. And it's like, yes, people do have agency and are held accountable but they're held accountable in accordance with how their actions line up to universal truth, not in how their accordance, how their actions line up to whether or not it's, you know, in alignment with some group identity or something or 
uh, what's deemed acceptable or okay identities to have as a person. Yeah, and even without usury, I would say this is just my own observation, and maybe it's been made before. I'm sure it has, probably by bankers, to be honest. But that you can have no usury and but still have borrowing. So you borrow the money and then just pay me back. Well, once you've done that, even without the interest concept attached to it, you're still on the hook to a certain group of people called bankers or loan people who have loaned you money or whatever, financial capital. There becomes questions of like, what money are you loaning? What like is it money on deposit? Like where is this money coming from? But the system is so complicated. You have like well, money that's that you keep in point. the bank and then it's invested and then it's invested on whose behalf? On their behalf, your behalf? How are they profiting? Why are the bankers the richest people in the world when you know what I mean? It's just Right. The whole lending system though, that's so interesting because that is a fundamental truism about our financial system is that in order to support the kind of lending and interest that we have the financial market that exists in the world today that, you know, has been pioneered by the U.S. and others, is inflation is baked into it. Like, you have to have inflation. Like, the money supply has to increase. Like, we have to invent new dollars every time we create a loan in order to create the loan, which is, yeah, right. again, a violation of a fundamental principle. It's like, those dollars don't exist. They don't represent any value. They don't point to anything real. They're just fiat, which is the, and again, back to Young, it's like, that is the nominalism that he was critiquing, which is like, they're just, the, the idea of just being like, oh, the words, the universals, they're just words. They don't represent any d deeper meaning. They don't have any substance, which is like, again, you see that embedded in the financial system. It's like, well, we can just invent dollars. And it's like, no, we can't just invent dollars if they don't represent any actual value that's been created, any actual food or any actual water or services or whatever that people actually need. Yeah, and I so I think probably one of the solutions here that he's not seeing is that there needs to be some level of moral and ethical consideration because I think they trick themselves into thinking that they are doing that if Who? they have a soul. The bankers, for example, bankers. in this case, financial yeah. capitalists or even capitalists for that matter, whatever modern day capitalism has become. They've convinced themselves in, in many of these cases that they are doing the good thing. If I send my labor to China because it's cheaper, you might complain that I'm stealing your job or I'm taking your job away, but really I'm lowering the cost of an item that you can now buy. So it's prioritizing consumption mm. over, uh, over wages, over production, over wealth, over security. And mm. that's a moral flaw of moral and ethical problems. Failing, so, yeah. Mm. A complete failing, yeah. So I think this kind of nationalist notion that people come up with as a solution oftentimes to like bring manufacturing home, bring the jobs home, you know, ways, even raising wages can be like a nationalistic take. I think that there's yeah. something to that kind of stuff under under this kind of moral frame framework to an extent. Like if there's a wage problem, figure out what that problem is. No, it's so interesting that you bring this up because, I mean, this is the kind of thing Jordan Peterson harps on. It's like, what on what grounds does our society stand? Like what universal, like we said earlier, like what universal principles will you use to organize the community if it's not embedded in a sort of moral ethic of sorts? Like... What do you have as a society? 
Yeah, and I, I don't know when you just have sort of a secular like economic philosophy or worse, just like a individualism, a radical individualism that rejects right. universals. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I I mean, it's so hard to find your place, you know, in our modern society, it seems like, because, I mean, for in a simple way of saying it, I feel like everything is co-opted or something, you know, like you can't trust this or that group or ideology or ideological group. Because I started thinking about this very thing recently, and it made me think of, which we talked about, of Mike Pence, who's like super Christian We did guy. the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We did it. <laughs> so I don't, I, there's, I don't really like that guy. I, there's something about him that's just yuck. Something off when I, Something seems weird. Something seems off. I think it's like partially just like this. It comes across as like a guy that's trying to be away. You know, he's mm. trying to be political. He's trying to be, even the way he talks, you, you know, Jordan, blah, 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 blah. You know, everything sounds like a campaign speech or something. It just comes across yes. as an inauthentic person. Exactly. But there's something to, I mean, if he's genuine at all in some of this, of some of these ideas, it's kind of like just what you're saying. Like, there's something to a moral framework for society, and I don't know if it, if the fundamental moral structure can actually be based on a completely secular. Well, yeah, so here's the argument. It's like if it doesn't come from within, if morality doesn't emanate from within the person, as Jung would say, like from the idea, from some preexistent form, as Plato thought and argued, then where does it come from? And it comes from power. It comes from someone who says, these are the laws. This is the order we're creating. And that is the fundamental, like I feel like conflict of our age seemingly our modern age is like the enlightenment era was like no all men are free morality comes from within there's an enlightened spirit that every man shares every man is free reason is a universal that all men are have access to and can appeal to that's the platonic spirit that young is talking about and then we've seen this inversion of it that's like no there are no universals it's just subjectivism it's just individualism and with moral relativism or moral subjectivism, like you decide, that kind of philosophy, where you decide what's right for you, then that is no moral right. framework. There right. is no ethic there because what makes it right? Well, it's like, well, you decide. Yeah, especially not on a community basis, which is where this like to- this ideology of tolerance seems like it actually turns toxic, turns right. into a cancer because everything is tolerated. And I think that it's unfortunate, the imperfection of humans, because we've have created laws to enact this moral framework this moral structure and i think these are like the laws of man like the old in christian and the christian understanding at least from what i've been exposed to which is not the same as what you've been exposed to everyone and it's also not <laughs> orthodox but i think this probably finds a vein in each kind of iteration that the old testament versus the new testament the old testament was the law 
and the new testament was like a new so like a law like the covenant whatever the new testament was the new covenant the new new one yes he says i'm not here to i think his, his quote was i'm not here to abolish the law or do away with the law but to fulfill it Mm. and so i think what we've done is we've done old testament type stuff which which is let's enact let's enact laws to institute morality which is actually kind of secular so our legal structures institute all sorts of these moral ideas and has been done so poorly and done so wrongly and for wrong reasons. So you claim that you've outlawed something for some moral reason, but your moral reasoning could have never been justifiable because it's ridiculous to not be able to grow pot in your backyard. But we've done it through a law and it was sold to you through some as morality. So now, since that's what you believe, that this was a moral decision, that's what we all believe, is that this was done on moral grounds, we reject the morality of the hierarchy we reject the morality of the power structure because we've become to we've come to a point now where we realize they're wrong so they can't be right if they're wrong all the time how could they be right how could they be righteous how could they right. how could they have the authority to do this right which is a rejection of the idea that it's right because the person who enacted it was right which is like the fundamental democracy versus communism argument was like democracy is right because it's america's philosophy like because we did it americans did it and it's right because it's we are the right people, you know. And then if you reject yeah, that, Jesus idea. has a problem with pot, right? Which yeah. so now the reaction to it, which is this hyper left wing crazy shit that we have going on now, where they're undoing everything because after all, these people made moral claims that were wrong. By the way, they were never moral. Remember, it was all economic. The pot thing was not about Jesus and right, God it's about him. and whatever. It's about money. So now these people appear justified and it it gets more and more difficult to argue with them, especially when they're when we do have a, a system in place that they can point to and go, but look how system did bad. And you go, shit, that's right. But then they get all this leeway to undo things to a ridiculous ridiculous extent because nobody has any moral standing. Nobody knows where that moral standing comes from. These idiots still stand right. up on the on the far right. Like I'm sure Mike Print Mike Pence is probably would probably I don't know. I do not know. But I'm assuming that he would is a anti pot guy. Should be illegal. You should be able to fuck people's lives over for having it. And so and it's I believe an overstep of it's ridiculous. I mean, that's controlling yeah. people on a level, individuals on a level that's absolutely bonkers and for no actual right. justifiable reason. So where do people, what what authority does anybody have anymore in this in our society to stand on? Because everything is basically collapsed and everyone is freaking out, trying to figure out what, how, who's going to stand up? How are they going to stand up? What will the, our savior, what will, what will Trump do to save us, what will who's going to come? What will RFK come and do and fix everything? Because yes. we're all well, we've all fallen off of our podiums or our pedestals or whatever. We need an alternative framework, an alternative vision, and that's the problem with so much of the 
quote unquote, like socialist or Marxist or leftist or even conservative critique. It's like you're not offering an alternative. Yes, we understand that there are problems and things should be dismantled. Sure, things should be taken back. Government should be reeled in. But the answer is not the radical proposition that no moral authority or universals exist at all, because that's not a sustainable idea for society. It's like, well, we have to have something, like something that will allow us to cohere and prosper as a community. And that something is not radical individualism, radical liberation, so to speak, for the individual. That's only the continuation of the trajectory that we've been on of the hyper-individualistic society, the hyper-consumptive society that we've become. It's like you just want to take it to the full force. You're like, remove all restrictions, you know? And then, too, you're doing the same thing. You're like, how will that be enforced? And you're like, well, we'll need a powerful government, you know, with the the right, quote-unquote, people in it um, to make sure that the right things are allowed and the right people are in the right places, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, it's very dark. And you need an alternative vision, which is, I think, exactly what, you know, you sent me this video of the reading of the Declaration of Independence. That's like what that was. It was like, here's an alternative vision to tyranny, to the king, to the monarchy, who's just exerting power and force and domination over everyone, the government that just subjects everyone to its will. Here's an alternative, is a free society grounded on principles, universals, that allow for socially productive relationships and order, but that don't compel anyone to be subjugated to the will of another person merely through use of force and power and coercion. And I feel like we need, yeah, we need something like that. We need like another, uh, yeah, hearkening back to whatever that spirit was, like, yeah, to young. It's like whatever that idea was, like, I feel like we are seeing kind of like a resurgence of it. Like there's a, you know, like the Russell Brands of the world. It's like there's something that's a counter to empiricism and uh, science that seems to be reemerging. That's like, no, we've lost something here. We've gone too far. Yeah, and everything's kind of in the air right now, and it will come. Every, what goes up must come down. Kind of idea that I there's yeah. a song by the Grateful Dead, um, and there's a line in it that says, "This is the friend of the devil." Is the song? Here's the line. I ran into the devil, babe. He loaned me 20, 20 bills. I spent the night in Utah in a cave up in the hills. I ran down to the levee, but the devil caught me there. He took my $20 bill and vanished in the air. So I think America is in this position where we've come out of the cave in Utah and we're heading down to the levee and the devil might catch us and take it back. Because we are hmm. in a position of, in many ways, it's unraveling, but I think that it's been said that, you know, we are a wealthy country, even our poor. And you feel that more when you are around a lot of people, like in cities that are doing okay, that have projects going on or whatever, whether you like it or not. I don't usually like it, but there's a lot going on but you get you go rural and you might see a lot of suffering but you now we're seeing like this homelessness thing going on i mean things kind of just getting out of control unraveling in the cities even yep now it's touching the city so we're heading back down to the levee so what happened the way we got into this situation perhaps might be it may have all been orchestrated the devil might have given you those 20 dollars mm. and you sold your soul to the devil made a bargain with the devil 
now you got to pay your due. We, we, I think we're in a position where it could be snatched right back out of our hands as a country, figuratively speaking, in a metaphorical sense, which is what all this kind of like turmoil is. Like, is there going to be a collapse? Is there going to be a, a real actual financial crisis? I mean, these are crazy questions because it's already happening. The national debt is already out of control. Like yeah, the money we is have worth. To I have mean, I a got, crisis. I got, I got two. The only question bags. is when. I got two bags of groceries the other day. It was like one hundred twenty dollars for nothing. Nothing. There was a jar of mayonnaise that didn't have poison in it. Luckily, I found another one that was not so poisonous. But basically, <laughs> I I don't. I'm try. I try not to have like soybean oil and like this this shitty oh. industrial lubricants that they try to sell you as food that give you cancer. So the at Ingalls down the road from me, the first one I saw made with a different kind of oil, an actual edible oil, was $12.73 for not a big blue plate Hellman-sized jar for a tiny little jar that you could hold with two fingers from the top to bottom. Oh, my gosh. $12. So I went for the $7.5 jar instead of that. And I'm not saying that you should pay more for actual food than you pay for poison. I'm saying that that's absurd. We're in a, we're having a problem. And, we're having uh, a problem. That's we're I having a say. big problem. <laughs> and I think that we need to make sure we get out of it and get out of it, not through that cycle that David yes. Harvey just pointed out, not through this whack-ass there's a barrier because yes, the crises yes. he's talking about are they do touch everybody, but sometimes the crises because he's saying how do we get into the current crises because of the, how we came out of the last one, but sometimes these crises aren't our crisis. The crisis might be just a crisis for these mother effers, these financial capitalists. They're having a crisis, so they'll just leave you. They'll just take that twenty dollars back and leave and vanish in thin air. That's what the song says. That's what they're gonna do. That's they what go they want to do. Fiji or wherever. Go, they go somewhere else. Whoop! Let me take that from you. Let's get a bailout. Let's do this. Let's do that. So they. Well, that's, that's the, thing. the nature of the beast. Yeah. Well, too, it's like we don't have. That's kind of like what? What do we need exactly? It's like we need a system that sets us on the right track. And what we have now is like we're on the wrong track and we just have all these corrective reactive mechanisms to like deal with the consequences of being on the wrong track, essentially, is what it seems like. And it's like, how do we get onto the right track? Yeah. Well, when you have things like like in the vaccine world, for example, when they're like, like, here's a like, like they're trying to fix problems or so they say, how can indemnity, how can taking away the ability to sue a pharmaceutical company for injury that they cause the responsibility yes how can that the be a liability. solution to a problem so you literally take away the corrective solution as a corrective solution like the way that you make sure that vaccines are safe is why do you know why they got indemnity they're not allowed to be sued because they were going to go out of business because they were harming people and people were like we're not we don't want these vaccines it they wasn't were profitable, yes. They were getting sued out of existence. Right. So it we literally had to wasn't protect a them. socially productive enterprise. It was causing more harm than benefit to the community. And the corrective mechanism that was in place to say that, yeah, that's not a socially productive enterprise. This is more harmful than it is beneficial. We're like, oh, well, the solution is just to remove that corrective mechanism. Like, let's not, yeah, let's just stop people from suing you. 
Okay. And then what are the people going to do? Well, they're going to come up for our heads. So we'll give them something else. The vaccine court, you know, like what? I mean, so this is just how we've done America and all that shit just needs to be undone. Like all this craziness just needs to be. And that's we're in the middle of like tumult, you know. Things are going right, and then crazy. people have getting caught. Have getting, have gotten, they're getting, <laughs> they're getting caught up. Um, people have gotten caught up in that because they think that it's right because their man did it. You know, the Republicans pushed that policy, so it's right, or the Democrats pushed that policy, so it's right. And it's like, no, that doesn't make anything right because the ideology doesn't make it right, or the man who says it doesn't make it right because he's a good man. He's a man who has the right identity, the right political affiliation. What makes it right is that it appeals to logic, to reason, to the natures of reality to the nature of God, to God's law, to the covenant, you know, that he's made with man, so to speak, religiously. And uh, yeah, we've gotten away from that and people get swept up in it and they think that things are broken and and then the the gospel of the poor or whatever, the deal that you make with the devil, the devil whispering in your ear is like, it's just him. It's, it's that he's a bad man. And if we just had a different man with a different identity, he would be able to set it right. Well, and that court case is like a good example of like what happens and what the problem is. Right. Literally putting your faith because, in man instead of God, by the way. Well, and so what people think, because they've been taught this, because and they, like I keep pointing out, they cannot think three-dimensionally or dimensionally at all. <laughs> so what they end up doing is they see problem. It's like the... So we go from let's decriminalize because that's the right, that's what should have been done. You don't have to legalize anything. That's a bad solution. Decriminalize gay marriage, but instead we legalized it. And these levers that are pulled to do these things, well, the thing that was pulled in the first place to institute it was this legal levers. Right. The difference there being that legalization is like writing something into law versus like decriminalizing means like we're not going to punish you with laws. So it's almost like the removal of laws, like the opposite. Right. So, but instead, because people don't see that and they don't understand that and they can't think three dimensionally, they think, well, the only tool that exists is this hammer. So legalize. Every, everything has to be done through these like right. coercive measures. So that's why. And you see the evidence of that, like in that Slack group, people can't understand. They don't understand that that you're putting, you're talking about a hammer. Hammers hit people indiscriminately. It just depends on who's holding it. So why don't you just get rid of the hammer in this case and say that we're not allowed to do this anymore. Let's stop writing infinite laws back and forth to figure this stuff out and go back to like, how about, like you said, decriminalize remove the law completely and see, right because otherwise happens. everything becomes a nail and then the hammer's instinct is to hit it to squash it to smash it to destroy it anything that's outside the norm any diversity has to be destroyed literally which is like the seemingly opposite of the liberal ideology which is like tolerance of diversity but then if your solution is legislate legislate everything's a hammer uh, well, then everything's a nail. Every problem, every you know, source of diversity disorder has to be quelled through force, through legal compulsion by the power of the government. Right. And the tension will never go away doing that. If everything is 
when we there's we have a two-party system when this side has power they punch and when the other side has power they punch it's just offense defense in an infinite game but let's just end the fuck the game is no good it's a right. stupid the game. only real game is the communitarians versus the libertarians okay exactly. it's just how much government intervention are we gonna have republicans and democrats y'all need to Shut the F up because y'all just are wafflers sitting on the sidelines and you're taking us straight to communitarianism. Yes, they're literally, it's the slow march to infinite, infinite legal control, infinite elite control. It doesn't happen all at once because it looks principled, it looks ideological, it looks like something. But ultimately, it's a battle between government power or elite power and the lack of that elite power because the more power that just freedom it's freedom versus control that's right the only and the and freedom is on the chart as we pointed out twice on two axes but control is never on the chart they're they're opposing they're saying the dimensionality here is freedom versus order versus diversity it's like what what are we talking about? Like, Quality, that's, yeah. you, you, if you frame it that way, then what are we talking about? That's you can't right. argue. Like we can't argue it's that. Nonsense. That doesn't even. It's not even coherent. Yeah, you can't even figure. How is it anyone going to figure that out? Because both order and what was the other one? Their proper term for it, it was like diversity or something. I mean, equality. Equality. So yes. order and equality are infinitely pitted against freedom. It sounds like you'll have none of these things ever. Right, right. Because, yeah. How do you have equality of freedom then if you are moving from freedom to equality? Like what? (laughs) It's so incoherent. Anyway, but yeah, no, it reminded me, I wanted to mention this thing about The Witcher. I was watching the show, The Witcher. I don't know if you watched it. It's very interesting based on a book series. But the one thing I thought was really insightful that he said is like The Witcher is this guy and there's this war going on and these people are getting together. They're like, which side are you going to be on? There's all this, you know, this one side's getting together, the other side's getting together. And people keep asking, they're like, which side are you going to be on? Which side are you going to be on? Like, we got, you know, and everyone's trying to lure him. They're like, well, if you come to our side, we'll give you this, or you're going to get this, and blah, blah, blah. And he said, it's so interesting how my neutrality annoys everyone, and it gets me bargains from everyone to come to their side. And I thought, that is because he is like a righteous character. Like he is the most morally upright character in the whole series because he, what, thinks for himself and he's principled. And you realize that the people, despite what you may think about the righteousness of their cause, like getting together against the quote-unquote enemy, they're all just partisan. They're all ideological. Well, and the premise there is that he will make some decision. Right, you have to. On yeah. one side or the There's other. There's no you way to stay neutral. You can't be neutral. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, or you or you can't just stay out of it. But I think that that's, we see that becoming true. So if I want to stay out of it, well, those fools are going to drag the whole world into it. So right. you can't really stay out of it. But it's like, but it, both of you, so what do you do when everybody's wrong? When the left is, when the two teams are both Right, the failure of the two-party state that we never were supposed to have, the two-party system that Washington warned us against, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like, that's why I'm, for my platform that I put forward, the minarchist abolitionist platform, which is literally, you just, if you want this, 
if you want the system, if you see the benefit of the of the entire of all, any order and freedom and anything that's left of the society, like the buildings that are built and the roads that take you to them, and the distribution network of goods and fuels and energy and all this stuff, it's there. Don't, I mean, you want it there? You don't want to rebuild everything. Well, we can't use these roads because they weren't built by capitalists. They were built by government. Whatever. We are where we are. If we just got reasonable, then we could just just start taking, reducing laws. No new law can be passed without four or five being taken off the books. We have to simplify the system so that people know how to behave within it. If I can't be successful, it's because I don't fucking understand how it works. I don't know what I should do. If I want to start a business, I don't. should I take out the loan or shouldn't I take out the loan? Is the money supply going to evaporate? Is the money going to inflate out of existence? What, what's going to happen? I don't know. I can't even analyze anything because everything is out of control. I don't know if I have to have a $200,000 a year HR department. Right. And the cost of doing it wrong is obliteration. They literally just come and take your business or you go under financially. You become so insolvent that you're literally never going to get out of debt. Like people never talk about that, by the way. People always talk about capitalists and we talk about the success cases, the people who made it big. But that's the minority. Most people make it bad, may go under, they lose money. It doesn't go well. Like I think we forget that that's the majority of cases. Yeah, they lose everything. Because oftentimes they put everything into it to make it do something. So, which I think is the appeal of people like, of like RFK or even of like, yeah, break things, get in there and fuck it up or just pull like, like, so all the, like the reason I think that like people like DeSantis and RFK are being looked at so closely by such a diversity of people all of a sudden is because there's, there's something like there's something different about them than there even was about Trump or Obama or even Bush, you know. Those um, those three guys almost seem like extreme in a in a weird way. Like because we we were thinking about extreme notions, change, hope and change, huge sweeping reforms and insurance and war policy and this and that. But it's like now we're now we're hyped up on people that are like where you're literally like, I don't really like that side of the aisle. I don't really agree with this guy totally, but I will say he's making a few really solid, reasonable points that seem like really coherent. And that wouldn't that just be so nice to have a calm, coherent, good thing happen Same in the world. person, yeah. So on the side of RFK, Someone it's who like, appeals wow, to logic and reason. Liter- just And just one little, that's the stuff that people are latching to. It's right. DeSantis going, you know, yeah, I'm a deep state CIA agent, but listen, I really am not for cutting penises off of children. So Is he a deep state if, CIA agent? Of course he is. He's a governor of Florida. Um <laughs> So oh, okay. okay, he's like CIA. Sure. He's CIA or something. He's 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 an he's a problem. He's a problem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was he the one? There's some problems. Like there are, but those would be extreme things to think about. And no one's. I think people are 
like kind of realizing the hopelessness of the extreme in a way, perhaps. I'm just coming off the top of my head. Some of those things are like big and intense. People are now, I think these are the kinds of steps that actually could be taken where it's like, can we just as a community, as a whole, like as a country, can, can we just calmly step back from this and say that watching a male say that he's not a male and beat the living shit out of women wrestlers is disturbing and completely insane. Can we just take that little step back? In the case oh of RFK, yeah. it's like, hey, I'm a lawyer and these are some cases that I won. That means that some of the stuff you've been told about the pharmaceutical industry is wrong. And it's like, remember how they just, you know, shut down the entire planet? like as if they were some alien invasion with 50 trillion spaceships, like just lasering, like that was the risk. Like just all, everyone just go oh home, Which shut is the happening. world down. It's going to happen. Project, Project Blue Beam, get ready. Um, but we have this. That's next. But so RFK saying, hey, remember how that's not cool? And like almost everyone's like, hmm. Even liberals and conservatives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Looking, I'm going, hmm, that's interesting. I would like to say something that everyone knows is true and I know is true. Anyway, I don't know. I'm just, I'm pointing out like a, I think like a, a energy to, yeah, like a possibility. Like I know things are, there's like fuel there and the fan, yeah. the flame just could get some oxygen from some bad places and get out of control. But I feel like if we just say like, super obvious i don't even know you know it's like i think i'm maybe the beginning of the conversation is like drawing my mind this way because in the beginning of the conversation we were talking about like we like we she she they we us our and it was just like that's so it's like so everything's becoming that preposterous we're like okay yeah let's no, not even i was making this there. point to michael yesterday i was like so, and you made this point kind of, but I'll extend it a little bit, is Tim Dillon used to be a comedian and he used to be like a satire comedian. And now he's like a prophet. The problem is that you can't satire satire. And so the whole shtick is just saying true things. And because people are so confused and crazy, true things sound absurd and funny. And that's the bit. That's the whole bit. That's the bit. <laughs> the bit like, is literally what? pointing out headline, like headlines from serious journalistic sources, like the fashion of the military in Ukraine. Like, right? It's like, oh, that's that's the joke. I was just that's the headline, that's, and that's the joke. Right? <laughs> that's isn't it funny? Like, <laughs> isn't yeah. the truth funny? Ha ha ha! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, crazy. I feel like it's the Jordan Peterson's been talking about this like clown stuff, like the archetype of the evil clown. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but this is something like that, where it's like when you enter a bad time, you have like the court jester that's like, oh, like the show, you know, like putting on the show for the people. And then you have the evil clown. It's like it's like an inverted version of funny where like somehow the funny things are the true things. And the yeah. not funny things are the serious things that everyone, the lies everyone believes. And, you know, like how long, like how, 
how entertaining is a clown really? Like, there's only so many things they can so many tricks in pull the bag, out of, literally. Yeah, only so many scarves they can pull out of their pocket. You know, eventually, if they just are infinitely pulling a scarf, like you'd be amazed. Maybe even for like a day, you're like, holy shit! And how many scarves are in like, there? <laughs> yeah, like that's impressive. And you you eventually realize you, it's a, it's a clown. It's not even real. I don't know how he's doing it, but it's not even real. Like it can't because that just I know that that many scarves don't fit in your pocket. So I'm just oh well. And you leave. You leave the circus. You're like I'm done. And mm. I th- I find a little bit of hope in that. That like the notion that I think people do tire out. And there's like there's this like. I don't know if you've heard of this, but maybe we should look into it and talk about it. But this thing called accelerationism or something where Shit. No. you get everything going. It's kind of like, so there's this really wild conspiracy called Operation Warp Speed. I mean, that's not the conspiracy. Oh, that was the thing Trump did. You mentioned this, the, yeah. Yeah, so like some people, like it's far-fetched, but like the idea is that Trump was doing us a favor like that was the only way to like get that to like not work as it could have like not get the whole world on infinite vaccines and vaccine passports was like to that recognize global it. change these... was going to take a long time and he was like let's accelerate it so it's obvious to people that so it's it become fake yes so everyone will go wait 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 what are you doing there's no way you know and so i don't think i'm not saying mm-hmm. that's what happened i'm just saying that you do see theory. that when things when things pull off that quickly people there's like a, a literally like, a, like like you start to think is this real like something is something yes. like how is this because this we would never do this in the real world like something is weird going on here david ike calls the uh, the methods of the elite the totalitarian tiptoe what's the point the point is it's slow so you don't notice it so like little by little by that's how we got into this position and yeah. like catast- catastrophic events do occur and they use those and they foment them sometimes to like get big change because they need that from time to time. But we all accept that from time to time a catastrophe does happen. But now they're having to pull off these fake catastrophes over and over and over again. And they're trying, to, you know, another way this has been pointed out is by some politician or somebody one time that said, you know, if it's not all a big conspiracy and all controlled, wouldn't these things that happen like sometimes if it's all just kind of chance and random wouldn't it sometimes be to our benefit like just just randomly like every now and then something (laughs) would happen it's like be to our benefit but since it doesn't like so it's been said and identified a million ways and i think we're in a place right now where like we went we literally went from like decriminalizing gay marriage to like people being like you can refer to me as we. In the second person <laughs> as first person pronouns that already first exist. First person plural. Right. So that's where we are. Like, and I think people saw, see that. Like they experience that In the third that, person that to quickly. first person plural, not second. But it's yes. important to understand, right? So <laughs> I think people are, are experiencing this and it's, there's maybe there's this potential that people go, fuck this, I'm leaving. I can't watch this. Cir- the circus is boring. Like yeah. I, don't, it's like become. It's like what is this? I don't. I'm okay. I got other shit to do. Like we just have other. Like have, I got to get back to the real world bef- because I have no idea what's happening outside the circus tent. Well, but it's probably a big fat fucking problem. It's so interesting because that's the story of Pinocchio. It's like how does Pinocchio become a real boy? Is he gets led out into the circus to this place that's fake, and his whole struggle in becoming a real boy is leaving the circus. 
where he's literally like it gets kind of dark too because he's like being abused like he's a child and he's being abused by this guy like the circus ringleader which you Mm. can think about like back to our episode about eating the children like sacrificing the children there's something dark going on at the circus like the ringleader the puppet master is literally like abusing the child the Pinocchio the fake boy and Pinocchio has to become a real boy and so in order to do that he has to leave the circus which is interesting metaphor yeah, you're, everyone thinks there. you're a freak and a misfit, but if you come here, don't worry, you'll fit in, but also you'll do exactly as I tell you. Right, right. And, yeah, too, the other thing that you Which said— Which is a really great metaphor. That's a really great metaphor for what is happening with, like, mm. we'll accept you. Oh, aren't you weird? I mean, aren't you weird? Well, there's, a, there's an ideology out there that accepts that and says that everything is fine. Like, you can— do what you want. In fact, I right. want you to lie because the whole point is we want to watch. We your love nose your grow. oddities. We love gawking yeah, so, at you. So, so tell tell lies, and we'll watch the nose, and we'll profit off of it. Oh my god! And wow, it's all so it's all like a perfect metaphor because that's the lure, and yeah. but you realize that it may look like your only option to have what what you were promised fame. Everyone will love you. Well, that's right. a f- mm. fucking fantasy. Sorry. It's the wrong God, the wrong thing to be chasing after. And it's a yeah. lie because it's really lie. it's it's for somebody yeah. else. Right. Well, yeah, I wanted to say this too, the last thing, because I have to go. We've been on this so long and so my long. computer is literally dying. Um, the accelerationism thing, that's another interesting point, because even if it's not a conspiracy, which I don't think it probably is, like how could people coordinate the acceleration of things? But maybe. Well, the same way financial capital does, but yeah. Yeah, maybe. There's an interesting just psychological underpinning to that that I feel like people just do that. People inch slowly down the wrong path. People don't slam the gas down the wrong roads typically. And if they do... That typically accelerates positive change. You don't change. What do they say in like rehab? You don't change until you hit rock bottom, you know. But until you hit rock bottom, until you accelerate all the way down that valley, you're just kind of going somewhere. You're kind of like making compromises along the way. You're making reasons why you shouldn't turn around. You're making reasons why you shouldn't turn left instead of right or right instead of left. Um, and so, yeah, you can see there's almost something interesting there. Like that's the kind of way I think in which people like make deals with themselves, you know, to go down the wrong path is because, well, I'm not doing it fast and quickly. And it's, you know, I'm not really thinking about where I'm going. I'm just making decisions on the margin. I'm just, you know, today uh, it feels nice to do this, even though, you know, that the road of me doing this over and over repeatedly leads somewhere bad. Um, people don't think like that. And that's literally called naivete. That's a naive outlook on life yeah well we're bordering on willfully ignorant at this point it's like don't you know that eating twinkies all day long is going to kill you like i know it's your body and your taste buds say eat it but don't because it's not right (laughs) it's not the best it's a shortcut to satiation or whatever to feeling good right and there's something beneficial there's a difference between winning the lottery and building a successful livelihood. Exactly. A lot of differences. <laughs> a lot of differences between winning the lottery and making a living. <sighs> yeah. Especially well, if the yeah. lottery is government sponsored.
I can't say too much because I can't divulge. I can't say why I know things about that, but just trust me, I have an inside source. 